I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree, I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For the love is, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. This is the very word of the Lord. Thank you, Jenny. Well, this morning we are concluding our study of the Song of Songs. Uh, All throughout this series, our thesis has been that uh, we take the Song of Songs at face value. It is, as one commentator calls it, an erotic psalter. It is what you think it is about. It is about uh, love, romantic love especially, and its physical expression and romantic love. Uh, At the same time, This book is in our Bibles to tell us something about the love of God for us. That's uncomfortable, as uncomfortable as sometimes having to come up here and read the scripture text over the congregation, or for certainly for me to have to preach this to you people. This is challenging. It's awkward at times. But we need to know the love of God in all of its dimensions. And the Song of Songs is crucial for us to comprehend it. Uh, throughout the series, we've entitled the whole subject, the whole study, The Thrill of Love and the Song of Songs. Now, I'm going to ask you a question as we begin to wrap up our series together this morning. What would the world be like if love did not exist? If there were no such thing as love, what kind of a world would this be? Could you imagine it? One thing perhaps that, you, that might surprise you is that one thing we might be able to say about a world like that is it would be fearless. I'm quoting from a movie I watched growing up. I didn't watch a lot of movies, but one was my favorite. It was called First Night. It was about King Arthur and Guinevere and Lancelot, and Sean Connery was King Arthur which was amazing. And one of the memorable lines coming from the wise King Arthur to Lancelot was this. He says, I won't do it in Sean Connery's voice. I'll spare you that. He said, if a man, uh, I'm sorry, he says, a man who fears nothing is a man who loves nothing. So a world in which there is no love, according to King Arthur, would be a world in which there's no fear. But would you want to live in that world? (laughs) He goes on to say, but if a man loves nothing, what joy would there be in his life? A man who fears nothing is a man who loves nothing. But if a man loves nothing, what joy would there be in his life? Love may be a struggle. 
It may be a struggle in your marriage. It certainly will be a struggle with God. But it is worth it. It is the pathway to life and all of its joys. So as we conclude our study together of the Song of Songs, I want to speak to you this morning from the last chapter about these three aspects of love. Love is expressive. Love is fierce. And love is enduring. Love is expressive. Love is fierce. And love is enduring. So let's begin. The first thing I want us to consider this morning is that love, this kind of love, the love of God himself is expressive. Now, it certainly expresses itself in all kinds of ways. But one thing that love cannot be is silent. It is too wonderful, too full of emotion and desire and passion to keep it to itself. I simply don't understand people who say they are passionate and don't show it. I don't get it. Love simply has to get out. It has to express itself. We see this clearly in the very first verse of the last chapter of the song. Here's what the, the woman says. The female voice speaks and says this in verse 1. Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I found you outside, I would kiss you and none would despise me. You understand what is going on here, right? The woman is expressing her desire and her passion for her beloved, even as it bumps up against cultural expectations. She intimates that in her society, public displays of romantic affection were frowned upon. So if only her beloved were her brother, she could show a little PDA and get away with it. The point is that what she feels for her beloved is real love, and love has to express itself. It has to get out, and often that means it has to get physical, which means it has to bump up against the gaze of public, uh, the, the shame of the public gaze. Even if there is a time and place for it, and now is not the time. The woman here still feels this way about her beloved, and she wants him to know it. And when she says at the end of verse 1, and none would despise me, she's referring to the shame that comes from cultural expectations, always wanting to put a little curb on love. But the love that she has for her beloved is a love that is unashamed and willing to challenge those expectations. She continues to talk this way in verse 2. If only her lover were her brother, she says, not only could she be permitted to show a little PDA out in public, but she could also bring him into the privacy of her home without raising any eyebrows. Of course, the reason she wants to bring him into the private place is precisely so that she can be intimate with him as the erotic language at the end of verse 2 and in verse 3 indicates. And then we come to verse 4, and we find the third and final occurrence of the adjuration to the daughters of Jerusalem. Now, if we were to compare this 
occurrence, this last one, to the last time that we saw it, back in chapter 3, we might notice that something similar is going on in this passage that was happening back in chapter 3. In both passages, we see the woman desiring, longing, seeking to find her lover and bring him in to her mother's house and make love with him. But in chapter 3, there was an impediment. There's an obstacle in the way of the search. The, the obstacle was the watchman. And if the watchman in chapter 3 could be taken to refer to societal norms about gender and sexual expression, then we find a similar thing going on right here in chapter 8. Now, societal norms may be good and right, of course. The passage could not be taken to necessarily mean we're always supposed to break them. It certainly ought not to be taken as an encouragement toward a transgressive view of sexuality and gender that is so applauded in our own cultural context. But given some other cultural context, you could imagine that the Song of Songs would be saying, hey, maybe we need to, maybe we need to push the boundaries just a little bit. And as Christians, love of neighbor, of course, requires the wisdom of knowing how we should behave appropriately at all times. But societal norms may also be bad and wrong. What is considered inappropriate might need to be challenged. It just might be the case that some here have lived in homes where your father or mother just weren't very expressive. They rarely have ever looked you in the eyes and said, I love you. It just wasn't appropriate to be that expressive. And I would say, that's a shame. That's a shame. And for whatever reason, it is all too common, it seems, for married couples to not only not be expressive, but to almost be derogatory in how they talk about each other. For example, to hear a husband refer to his spouse as the wife. The wife? You know what I mean. Maybe it would do you good, men, to get rid of the definite article there and refer to your wife as my love. Maybe, just maybe, it would do you married couples some good. I'm just going to leave this with you to consider, if you're not already doing this, to be a little bit more expressive in your homes. Dare I say, maybe even a little inappropriate. So that your kids will learn how appropriate it is for married couples to feel this way about each other. And when it comes to God, it might also do us some good to be a bit more expressive. Yes, even in public. We could start here. Maybe raise your hands and worship a little bit. I sit in the front, so I have no idea. Maybe you're all doing it. Get a little dance in your body while you sing. Oh, yeah. Uh, 
an amen once or twice. That will work. Maybe clap just a little bit. You know, we're, we're so awkward around here. I know. I try to get as close, like two, three claps. And like, eh, it's better not. My neighbor's not clapping. Sing out loud. Lose your voice in singing. I dare you. I dare you to try it. It might stir up love. Ah, oh, but Ben, don't you, don't you see what verse 4 says? Do not stir up or awaken love. We've seen this before three times. So is it even right to stir up love? I'm glad you asked. Because we need to remember that the love that we are looking for, the love that we were made for, while it is expressive, it is also fierce. I'm getting this word. I use this word. I wondered, what should I make of this second point? What should I call it? Love is what? Verse 6 calls it fierce. So I'm going to go with fierce. There is simply no room for sentimentality here. That's not the kind of love we're talking about. The love that we have in view here, the love that we are after, the love that we believe in and are pursuing is the greatest power in the world. So yes, verse 4 warns not to stir up or awaken love until it pleases. But in verse 5, we find the same Hebrew word, ESV translates it the same way, for awaken as we find in that adjuration in verse 4. The word means, yes, to wake up, but it means to excite, not just to rouse, you know, like, oh, okay, I was asleep, now I'm halfway awake. No, no, this kind of wake up is like stir up. The women of Jerusalem and us, the readers, have been strongly warned now three times in the song not to wake up or stir up or excite love, but to wait for it to happen. That's good that's good marriage advice, of course. Don't just force a relationship because you're desperate for love. That's deadly. Love is a great thing, but you dare not try to manufacture it. Otherwise, it will sting you. It will disappoint you. And that's true with God as well. Some, seeing how much others enjoy or seem to be stirred up by a loving relationship with God, might try to manufacture it and end up disappointed and disillusioned. Maybe that's why some of us just have a hard time being expressive. I don't want to force I don't feel it, so I'm not going to do it. Yeah, I get it. I get it. If you thought that you could find love with God just by going through the motions, just by going through the rituals and the habits and the routines, mindlessly, if you thought you could just do what other Christians do who love God, go to church, read your Bible, pray, you know the list. Do not be surprised then if you seem to have come up short. Love does not quite work like that. You can't manufacture it. Okay, well. So on the one hand, you're supposed to stir up, excite, love. Love is expressive. On the other hand, you can't manufacture it. So what should we do? Well, let's keep reading. Let's keep reading. I think that the speaker in the first part of verse 5 
is the chorus, the women of Jerusalem. Again, our Bibles make interpretive guesses by putting she or he, which the ESV does. But that's not, we don't always know if that's right. And I think here that the speaker, the first part of verse 5 is the chorus, the, the daughters of Jerusalem. It, it's actually us, the readers. They, we, are responding to the adjuration in verse 4. And verse 5, again, to go back to Song of Songs chapter 3, is very similar to the verse that followed the previous adjuration in Song of Songs 3, 5. There, the next verse begins, what is that coming up from the wilderness? That's Song of Songs 3, 6. Now, notice here that we again look out to the wilderness, and we see, what do we see? We see, we see the woman leaning on her beloved. And then we listen in. We draw a little close, and we hear what she says. Under the apple tree, she says to her beloved, under the apple tree, I awakened you. There it is. What happens then when love is aroused, awakened, excited? This is also the answer to the question that we are asking here. The question about how do we find this kind of love that we're looking for when at the same time we've been warned not to manufacture it, not to shortcut it, short circuit it. Something remarkable then happens here at verse 6 and in verse 7. Love has, for the woman, been aroused. She knows it. And it is at this point that we find the only instructive pronouncement in the entire song. This is as close as you get to a didactic teaching, something like a thesis statement. It's almost like the poetry almost has ended at this point. But it's beautiful what she says. This is what the poet has been showing us all along. So let's listen in. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. Now notice carefully what she says. She does not say, put a seal on your heart for me. As if she wants him to have some sort of symbol of the love that she and her beloved share. You know, like some of you have a tattoo with your beloved's name on it. That's cool. I like that. But that's not what she's talking about. Rather, she says, set me as a seal upon your heart. What's the difference? She is asking to be the seal, the very mark of her beloved's identity. She is asking him to make her, in the words of one commentator, as intimately bound up with his identity as his own seal might be. How romantic, maybe you're thinking. Well, that's so sweet. Well, it, it is. <laughs> but do you see what this means? 
the woman is asking her beloved to take possession of her. And in doing so, she will have full ownership of him, having been set as a seal on his heart and on his arm, that is, on his whole person. Now, this is why you must not try to manufacture love or short-circuit it. Because what, the, what love will require, what love will indeed demand, is nothing less than a whole life commitment. This becomes even clearer in what we read next. She says, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Right here at this crucial moment in the song, the woman has personified love, turning it into a force that contends with cosmic powers. And she seems to be telling us that you dare not give yourself, commit yourself to anything that we might call love except this one, this kind of love that is strong enough to go toe-to-toe with the greatest foe of humanity, death. The second line makes the same point in parallel and maybe is a little more clarifying. Jealousy here should be taken as another word for love, just as the grave is another word for death. Here we see the real cosmic battle that is going on day after day. The real battle that is happening everywhere you look, in your life, every, at your job, like in your homes, this is the real battle that's going on day after day. It is not the battle between life and death, to be precise. It is the battle between Love and death. You did not hear me, so I'm going to say it again. The real cosmic battle, the battle, the fight that is going on all around you, within you, outside you, in your homes, in your workplaces, everywhere you look in society is not the battle between life and death. It's the battle between love and death. As one commentator puts it here, that love and death are indeed involved in a struggle is vividly illustrated in the fact that both are trying to possess the same object, the loved one. You don't think about life like that, trying to possess you, but you do know that's what love is all about. Every single day, Some of us know this more than others. Death is pulling at you with a gravitational force that you know will eventually prevail. You young people have no idea, right? (laughs) But I'm here to tell you, I am here to tell you that there is a rival power A power that is, in the words of the song here, strong as death. 
And that power is love. Boy, okay, I'll try one more time. The final lines of verse 6 tell us that the flashes of love are flashes of fire, the very flame of, Lord here is in all caps, the very flame of Yahweh. Now, nowhere else in the Song of Songs do we find mention of God's personal name. This is the only place. In fact, um, it's the abbreviated part of the sacred name. It's not Yahweh, it's just Yah. And what's interesting about that is that it may be here that this is only the, um, the use of the sacred name in order to turn flame into a superlative. If, you're care- if you've got the NIV with you, you'll notice it actually translates it here, a mighty flame. Either way, the point is to continue to paint this picture for us that there is a love that is fierce, intense, dangerous, so dangerous, so deadly, it threatens death itself. Now, do you see why? Do you, do you see why it just might be that the Bible tells us that God is love? Because God is trying to possess you in the same way that death is trying to possess you. God is trying to possess us, the people that he made, the people that he loves. He wants you. And his his quest to possess you is life itself. If God fails in his quest, the only result is you will be possessed by death. So, because God is love, God also must be jealous. Only in marriage and in God's relationship with us is jealousy not only appropriate, but absolutely essential. You want to have a marriage that lasts, then you need a lover who is jealous for you, who will tolerate no rivals. And if you want to have a life that will last, then you need a God who is love, who is jealous for you and will tolerate no rivals. If God stops being jealous for you, you die. That's how fierce real love is. Yes, love is a struggle. It can burn you. And many people give up on God for the same reasons they give up on their marriages. 
It's just too hard, too painful. Can't love him anymore. But where else are you going to go? As C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Four Loves, the only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. So yes, love is a struggle. But to love God is worth all the struggle. I'm here to tell you today, it is worth every ounce of fight that you can get. Because God is love, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, and love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and listen, endures all things. Love never fails. So love is expressive, can't be silent, and love is fierce. But don't you see then, friends, don't you see then that love is also enduring? It's because love is expressive. It's because love is fierce that love never fails. I want you to look at verse 7. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. Now, that may not mean a lot to you, but in an ancient world, this is a clear symbol. Uh, many waters and floods is, is, the, is the ancient world's way of speaking about absolute chaos and utter destruction. The Bible tells a story, Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you know what it says next, right? And the earth was tohu vabohu, is the Hebrew, without form and void. Complete chaos. Waters covering the earth, and there's what? No life. Just death. Just destruction, chaos, What could possibly come out of this primordial soup? And the Bible's answer is, let me tell you, life. How? Just random chance? Oh, we're getting into dangerous waters here, aren't we? I'm not preaching Genesis 1 right now, but I am here to tell you this. The Bible's answer is, well, however the process works, I will tell you this, it's not random chance, it's love. And God said, God begins to express himself, and what emerges in Genesis 1 and 2 is a world teeming with life, filled with colors, Abundant in fruit, all the things that make you smile, that bring you joy. A world of bounty. This is what God made. The world did not come about by random chance. It came about by love. Are you with me, church? I, I'm, I don't know. 
Amen. I'm trying my best today to tell you this is how we need to understand the God who made the world. It came about by a love that had to speak, had to express itself. And when God spoke, worlds came into existence, the world you inhabit. Some of you need to give yourself a little permission to enjoy the world that God made. And that's what New Creation Monday is all about. All right? So... We're going to try to push into this a little bit, and I'm daring you to come join us. Well, I got to take off work. Do it. Call in sick. Did I just say that? <laughs> All right, I'm going to stir you up. If that's what I have to do, like he just said, then I'm going to do it trying to stir us up because we got to live in this story, brothers and sisters. Listen to me. Because if the world was made by the love of God, then guess how the world is going to be remade? In fact, let me show you. The woman, I think, is the speaker in verses 8 and 9. The little sister here is a foil allowing her to say something about herself. I know that's probably not the way you read verses 8 and 9 before. <laughs> You're like, are you going to tell us about that? Just let me tell you, I think that the little sister is a foil so that she can speak about herself, which is what she does in verse 9. And she's saying, I don't need to make preparations for love. I have found the love I'm looking for. And I am ready to meet this love because I've already given myself to him. I've already committed myself to my lover. And then she says the result of all of that, she uses the word at the end of verse 10, is shalom. It's peace. It's Solomonic prosperity. That's the kind of love you were made for. And when you encounter it, give yourself to it. It's the love of God. And then I believe it's the man who speaks in verses 11 to 13, and he does the same thing. He uses his own foil of Solomon's vineyard to say something about himself. Many commentators assume that Solomon's vineyard refers to his royal harem. Some of you have asked me about this as we've gone along. What about Solomon? Yeah, again, I don't think Solomon is the author of the Song of Songs. But he is used here on a couple of occasions. He's, he shows up early, earlier in the song to show us the kind of over-the-top prosperity, to show us the kind of love we're looking for. But here, here, he's a negative foil. Look what he does. He's a foil. That's what a foil is. Look what it says here. In verse 12, uh, or verse 11, Solomon has a vineyard. Solomon has a harem. And let me tell you, you know anything about, you, you learn anything about Solomon. <laughs> well, you probably didn't learn this in Sunday school, but eventually you found out that Solomon has got quite a vineyard. And in order for Solomon to tend his vineyard, it's going to cost a lot. You're going to have to have a lot of keepers. You know, you got a thousand. Thousand. So it's going to have a lot of people to guard this vineyard. 
the man says, Solomon's got his vineyard, but let me tell you something. I have my own vineyard. If you look back at verse 7, a man might be despised for giving everything he has for love. But this man says, I've got my own vineyard. I've found a love. Solomon can have his thousand. I found my one, and I'll give everything for this one. This is how it is with real love, and that's why it's also how it is with God, with Jesus. When you see who Jesus is and what he has done for us, bringing into reality right now in real space and time the kingdom of God, which is an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom that will not end, a kingdom that will go toe-to-toe with death itself and prevail and triumph, you sell everything for it. You commit yourself to it. What, what if I have to forsake my allegiances with this particular kingdom, you know, the one called Democrat or Republican? You do it. You give it all away. Because this is a kingdom that will never end. Somebody almost clapped. That would have been all right. The song then ends in a very interesting way. Look at verse 14. Make haste. This is the female voice. Make haste, my beloved. But the word make haste here is the Hebrew verb flee. (laughs) Go away. Which is really bizarre. That's why some translations want to make it sound like she's, She's telling him to come near, and maybe, but she's doing both at the same time because she uses the word flee or or run away. In other words, the song ends with us asking that question. Is she asking her lover to run to her? Just like the gazelle or the young stag in which the song began earlier? Or is she saying, run away, run away from me? Either way, the song ends with this ambiguity which starts the song all over again. You get to the end of Song of, song, song of Songs 8.14 and you're like, what do I do next? So I guess I go to Isaiah, right? <laughs> That's not what you do. I don't know. This, I, don't, I, I dropped out of my piano lessons too early. Thanks, Mom letting me do that. But uh, so I don't remember how it goes. Vince, there's something that's like at the end, it tells you to go back and sing it again or something. That's it. I, it's, I, I, I knew that once. Never knew that. But that's exactly what's going on here. You get to Song of Songs 814, you know what you're supposed to do? Go back to chapter one. What? Well, well, <laughs> okay, all right. All right, here's my point. The song of songs is an eternal song. 
you go back to chapter 1 and it starts all over again. Well, what happens when I get to 8.14 the second time? Sing it again. Yeah, third time. Sing it again. How, how long? Seven times? How about 70 times seven to coin a phrase? Let's just keep the song going forever. You better hope it goes on forever because that's the only way you live. So again, we find a love that is eternal, strong as death, yep, and therefore, maybe, just maybe, able to prevail over it. So we get a pattern that we've seen and we'll see repeated, new, or did see repeated numerous times in the song. Absence and longing leads to search and discovery, which results in intimacy and joy. Sur- or absence and longing leads to search and discovery, which results in intimacy and joy. So brothers and sisters, let us keep singing this song. The message that we have to say to one another and to a world is a message of a love that is strong as death and therefore will triumph in the end. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we believe, but help us in our unbelief. I've often pondered, Father, the words of Jesus when in John 6 he said some really hard things and one by one his disciples began to walk away from him and all was left was the 12 and he said to them, would you also like to go away? And Peter said, well, where else could we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And the great God of love, who brought a world into existence out of pure delight, has begun to speak again in Jesus of Nazareth, bringing a new world to light once more. And we, who have heard his voice, have been called to give ourselves completely. Yeah, it's risky, fierce, dangerous, and yet it's a power that can prevail even over the grave. How do we know? Because of Easter Sunday. How do we know? Because there's a tomb that is empty. There is a love that has prevailed over death. And eternal life, Jesus said, begins now. This is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So may we know you, O God, and live in light of your love, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.